Okay, as Judy introduced me, my name is Rona, and I'm the campus director of Emmaus at SNU, Seoul National University. Anybody at S from SNU here tonight? Okay, this corner over here, they're taking finals. There's usually more of them. My students are awesome. Okay, anyway, um, I'm going to kick off and, and just start with no introduction because I always preach over an hour, and I vow to Pastor John that I would not do that. Thank you for the timer. Let's go. Ephesians 3. Starting with verse 14. Let's turn there quickly in our, in our Bibles, everybody. Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 14, going through 21. And if I could please have some water, that would be awesome. Okay. I'm going to start reading from the ESV. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. <laughs> For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's pray together. God, I thank you for who you are to us. I thank you that you move out of your nature, and your nature is a perfect and loving God. And Holy Spirit, I pray that tonight you will give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we can really know you and see you as you are. And God, I pray that you will give us a greater hunger to seek after and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we will catch this revelation in our hearts, and that it will transform who we are from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, the water appeared after I finished praying. Okay, um, so I about a year ago, if you guys remember Stephen Beauchamp, he's a minister from International House of Prayer in Kansas City, and he was one of the ministers at our retreat in the past, and he came to SNU, and he was one of our guest speakers, and he preached a message. And in this awesome message where he was, like, prophesying over the students, and it was like, really powerful, he just kind of threw something out there. And he said, in the word of God, there are apostolic prayers. In the word of God, there are apostolic prayers. And, and these prayers are basically prayers that have been written in the word of God that we can read and we can pray and they will happen. They're prayers that Jesus prayed. They're prayers that the apostles prayed and they recorded. And the reason why we are 100% certain they will come to pass is because they're written in the word of God. It's the will of God. And when you pray from the will of God, you know it's going to come to pass. And he said that it's so important if you meditate on and pray through apostolic prayers. And so I wrote them down, and I, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know, because I'm really task-oriented. So if, if I know these prayers are going to get results, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pray these prayers, make it happen, you know. So I, I began to go through different apostolic prayers and pray them and meditate on them. And a couple months later, I, I felt like God was confronting my heart. And one thing that God was saying was, Rona, um, you need to be more gracious and loving. And then I was like, 
Do you know how gracious and loving I am? Like, I am so gracious and loving to my friends and family and students. And I was just, you know, protesting. And then the Lord said, Rona, um, you need to be more gracious and loving to yourself. And then I, I was like, what are you talking about? And then I, I remembered God began to show me pictures of moments in that day where I had made mistakes when I had, you know, said certain things. And I was replaying the mistakes in my mind over and over. And then God said, Rona, the measure of love and grace you can extend to the people you're ministering to is capped by what you have received and possessed as your own. If you don't show love and grace to yourself, the love and grace you're extending to other people isn't real. And the best thing you can do for the people you're ministering to is to meditate on the love and grace of God for yourself. And so I said, oh, okay, God. And um, this was about a year ago, last summer, actually. And, and I began to... Meditate on this apostolic prayer in particular from Ephesians 3. Meditating on the love of God. And I, I went on an extended fast last summer. And this was the easiest fast I had ever gone on. I, like, it was so easy. And I was more healthy and strong than I was normally. Like, I normally, in my average physical fitness, can't do one pull-up correctly. But then in, during this fast, I did like three and it was awesome. I was like so fit during this fast. It was just so much grace and God was really nourishing me through, through this particular passage. And so, um, basically I am going to take us all on the journey that God has been unpacking in my own heart regarding his love, regarding what this passage has meant to me over this past year. And I really feel like it's a timely word for our house because of the season we're in and because of the mandate he's given to our house to be salt and light in this city. Um, And so I'm going to talk about this passage, but before we just drop into the prayer, um, this isn't just a random prayer that a random guy prayed to, you know, ambiguous people, but Paul, the Apostle Paul was actually writing to a specific people group in a specific time. And what happened was um, Paul, he was writing to a church in Ephesus, okay? And at this time, Ephesus was the third largest city in Asia Minor. It was a bustling city. Okay? It was full of different cultures, different religions. People were um, very affluent in Ephesus. It was, it was like a really crowded, big city. Okay? And it was a center for trade, culture, entertainment. And Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus when he was imprisoned in Rome. All right? And he was, he was in chains for the gospel, but he wrote them this letter. And he, he spent more than two years there when he had previously gone there on one of his missionary trips. But it had been about three to five years, they say, three to five years since Paul had visited his beloved church in Ephesus. So these believers, they weren't Jewish Christians. They were Gentiles that had become Christian. And they weren't baby believers anymore. They've been walking with Christ for three to five years at least, all right? So he's, he's talking to a church that is maturing, a church that is transforming, a people that are moving from infanthood to adulthood in the faith. And Paul is helping them. He's moving them along on that transformation to become more in alignment with God's plans and purposes and his heart. And Paul was actually addressing a specific concern that he saw in the Ephesian church. One of the things that he saw was disconnection, okay? Disconnection. And you can see that in, in all the different chapters. There's disconnection in, in all these different groups, in all these different parts of people's lives. And Paul begins his prayer by saying, 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And so if you ever see for this reason, you should look a couple of verses before to see what he's talking about is the reason, right? So for this reason, the reason being, okay, we have to look in chapter 2, and it says that Paul kept reminding them of something. He kept saying, if you look at chapter 2, remember that God is rich in mercy, And that out of his great love, he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses. By grace, you've been saved. Remember that at one time you were Gentiles, the uncircumcision, you were without Christ. You were aliens, you were strangers, you had no hope, and you were without God. But you have been brought near. Hey, remember where you came from. Ephesians, remember that you once were without Christ. You were the pagan, Gentile, non-believers. You were that person, okay? And then we drop into the apostolic prayer in chapter 3, and he says, For this reason, because I'm a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles, I'm going to pray a particular prayer for you. He reminds them that they were once sinners, lost in their transgression, and then he tells them about his evangelistic ministry to the Gentiles. He tells them about the commission that God has given them to the Gentiles, all right? And he prays for the Ephesians. The Ephesians who are now disconnected and disinterested in the Gentile, pagan, unchurched believers all around them in their bustling metropolitan city. Okay? The Ephesians... In this, in this particular chapter 2 and 3, they were so disconnected from the world outside their Christian church community in this big, diverse city. And Paul begins his prayer in a really interesting way. He says, <clears throat> I bow my knees before the Father, okay, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So his aim is... There's a lot of disconnection happening between the church and between the lost in the city. But hey, we have one father. We have one father by whom every family in the earth is named. Do you see what Paul does? He starts his prayer with connection. Okay? He is my father, a Jew of, a, of the Jews. He, he like aced every Jewish test in his Jewish school and got gold stars every day. He was an Israelite of the Israelites. He's my father and he's your father. The Gentiles who are now believers, he's your father. And he's also their father, the there that are outside our church walls that have yet to know Christ. He is all of us. He's our father. Okay, so we can't be so disconnected from who is out there because we share the same father. And he continues his prayer and he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. And here power, we've talked about it before. It comes from the Greek root word dunamis. Okay, and it means miraculous power, might, strength and ability. I pray that God will strengthen you with miraculous power so that Christ may dwell or inhabit, settle in your hearts and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Okay. And here the metaphors of being rooted and grounded, it's, it, it symbolizes that there's room for expansion. It symbolizes that there's room for growth. Okay. When we become believers, Christ dwells in our hearts. But here Paul is, is kind of suggesting that I, believe that the dwelling place of Christ in your heart can be expanded, okay? I believe that the dwelling place of Christ in your heart, your capacity to house Christ, can be enlarged, okay? That's what he's meaning when he says this. 
And he says, I want you to have the dunamis, the miraculous power for Christ dwelling in you to be enlarged. And how does he say this happens? How can the Christ dwelling in us be enlarged? Paul continues the prayer and says, by comprehending or to lay hold of, to seize, to possess, what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love? I pray that you will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Everyone say surpasses. Surpasses. And the surpasses here, it comes from two Greek words, and and probably not going to pronounce them correctly, but it's hooper balo, okay? And hooper means um, beyond or over, and balo means to cast or to throw. So if you put those two words together, it means to throw over or behind, to run beyond, excel, exceed, transcend, surpass tremendously, to throw beyond the usual mark. And when I read this, I, I was like, I just got a picture of my childhood, and I have an older brother, and um, I lived on a farm, okay? So I also had a bunch of guy cousins that were older. So it was me, little Asian girl, and then my older brother and my guy cousins, and we were running around playing on the farm. And one time we were playing basketball, and my brother was like, hey, Rona, catch the ball, okay? And so I was like, okay, Will, and then he threw the ball at me, and then um, my cousin, my guy cousin was standing behind me, and then he they threw it over my head, and then he's like, hey, Rona, catch, and then he threw it over my head, and then I, I jumped up in the air, and I thought I could get it, but it completely went over my head, and then they're like, Rona, this time, I'm going to really throw it to you, and then every single time, they threw it over my head. <sighs> I fell for it every single time. Anyway, so this surpasses that, that we're talking about. You can kind of picture it like that, okay? Hooper follow. It goes completely over your head. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you have dunamis, miraculous power to catch and seize and lay hold of this revelation of God's love that is completely over your head. Like it's uncatchable revelation. I'm going to pray that you have miraculous power. And this dunamis is the same miraculous power that, that God talks about for signs and wonders in the New Testament. The same miraculous power that did miraculous signs and wonders is what Paul is talking about. It takes that much miracle for you to understand and grasp this surpassing love of God. But I pray that you will know it. Okay? It's going to transcend and go completely over your head. But I pray that you will be able to lay hold of it. That you will be able to seize it. to keep moving on um and then the next part of this prayer is is so crucial the ending part of this prayer says that you may be filled filled which means full to the brim okay overflowing with all the fullness of god that you will be filled with the fullness of god all of this i'm praying I pray that you will know God's love and catch this uncatchable revelation so that you will be filled with the fullness of God, okay? And if we kind of talk, if we, if we step back and think about it, what does the lost and the, the Ephesian church being disconnected from the people outside, the people who are not believers yet, what does that have to do with them getting a greater revelation of God's love? With them being filled to the fullness of all the filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does that have to do with it? But see, but Paul sees that there's an intimate connection. If the Ephesian church will get a greater revelation of the love of God and catch this uncatchable revelation, they will change their city. 
And it's not going to be something that's so hard and an obligation and so tiring and burdensome, but it's going to be something that flows out of them naturally. Paul does not say, hey, you need to get on your evangelism game. Hey, you need to talk to at least five non-believers every single day. He doesn't guilt trip them, but he says, I pray you will know God's love more. I pray that you will have the miraculous power to grasp God's love for you. For you, not even for them. He doesn't even pray that they will know God's love for the the non-believers. He says, I pray you will know God's love for you, the depth and the height and the width and the length of his love for you personally, and that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's intent is to reach the unchurched, and he wants to reveal the redemptive work of Christ through those who've already been redeemed. And his strategy is to pray for believers to get a greater revelation of the nature of God's love. And this, I feel like, is really, it connects to what we are going through as a house right now. And if you've been paying attention to the different messages that our um, lead pastors, Pastors Aaron and Pastor Christian, are preaching. One of them was process-oriented evangelism. Another one was wisdom in loving homosexuals. Another one was the power of connection. Okay? And we're receiving very practical wisdom, okay, about how to effectively minister to the unchurched, to people that are different than us, to people that may be difficult to connect with, all right? But I wonder if we actually stopped after one of these messages and thought about what this actually means. What do messages like this actually implicate in our lives? Do we just learn about how to better relate to non-believers so that we can know it in our minds? Oh, I'm glad I know how to um, process, evangelize to non-believers. And I'm glad I know how to love the gay, bisexual, lesbian community better. I'm glad I know how to connect with people. That's awesome. And I'm going to go smart comment. Okay? Like, I wonder if, if when we heard these messages, we're like, oh, I, I wonder if this is for a reason. Okay? And I feel like God is saying, yeah, it is for a reason. It's for a very specific reason for what I'm doing in your house at this hour. I think... This is just a wild guess, but I think it means we're about to know and to get to know some non-believers, that maybe we're going to get to know some homosexuals, and maybe we're going, to, we're going to be called to connect with people that it's difficult to connect with. I think that may be what is happening in our house soon. I think that maybe God will give us opportunities to connect with people that we haven't had access to before. I think we're about to step into that. That's just a wild guess, but maybe that's going to happen in our house. And I believe that God is preparing us. He's preparing our hearts for when that happens. Um, Pastor Benjamin, in his sermon at the retreat, The Art is an Anointing, he said, Wisdom is not just something you have in your heart. Wisdom is something you do and something you use. Wisdom is known by her children. What you do demonstrates what you have. And when you truly possess wisdom, it makes you do something. And with messages like this, it's not just about knowing it. Wisdom, in all of these areas, makes you do something. If you really have it, then you will do something with the wisdom that's been given to you. You know, truth theology, it bears fruit as lived theology. 
It's not just some concept or idea in our minds, but it matters when it bears fruit in our life, when it becomes alive in who we are, when it's not just some idea that we agree with, but it's how we live and it transforms the essence of who we are. That's when theology is real. That's when it matters. Theology is supposed to find its expression in our lives. People are supposed to know what we believe based on how we live and who we are as people. There was a long season in my life when I thought that the acquisition of knowledge was the most important thing. That actually wasn't a long season. That was my whole life until about a year ago. And and you know what? What I have found, though, over the past few years of actually doing ministry with real people day after day, away from my books about sacrificial love and, and giving of yourself... What I discovered doing ministry was that it really doesn't matter how much you know. What matters is if what you know has transformed who you actually are. If it's reprogrammed you from the inside out. If your theology just isn't just talk and thought, but it's actually how you live your life. The end goal is not smart commenting on the podcast so we don't get in trouble at furnace. Okay? And I know sometimes we're like, oh, I don't... because. Like, I have students under me that I'm supposed to yell at if they don't smart comment. Like, I'm really afraid of getting in trouble at Furnace too. But that's not the end goal. And, and that should not be our motivation, okay? The end goal in, in the heart behind this is that not that we can just smart comment and put letters on Facebook, but that we're supposed to have chewed on it and stewarded. It's supposed to have become more of who we are. It's supposed to have changed us, and then it flows out of that place. You know, I was one of my students, a student leader, which we're supposed to, like, hold accountable to the smart commenting. He's one of my Malaysian students. And I just, I've fallen in love with my Malaysian students because they're so pure and, and wonderful. And anyway, he got called out for not smart commenting. And then I was like, hey, like, you need to get on it. You need a smart comment. I was bringing the wrath of Rona. And then, and then, like, and then he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll be more on it next time. And I'm like, what's going on? You, you want to talk about it? You know, and then I, I tried to be nice. And then he's like, actually, I don't smart comment until I've been able to meditate on the word, pray through the word, um, really get it in my spirit. And I won't, put it, I won't put my comment up until I really caught it, until it's changed me. And I was like, and he's like, and, and I wasn't able to do that for the last couple sermons, so I haven't smart commented, but I'll be more on it. Then I was like, okay, good. <laughs> I walked away, and I was like, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I, like, ah, I was just con- so convicted. And then, ah, uh, discipling them is really fun and humbling. Okay, so where am I in my notes? Um, okay, so. <clears throat> Anyway, so tonight I'm going to share some of of this journey that God has been taking me on through this passage very quickly, and um, I'm not going to do a good job of describing um, different things, different aspects of God's love that he's revealed to me as I was meditating on this passage, because it's indescribable, and I still don't understand his love, but there are a couple things I want to highlight about the love of God through this passage that I believe will propel us will enable us, will equip us to better minister to the unchurched in this season to come, okay? And I pray that it will provoke us to really hunger and seek after um, catching this revelation of God's love day after day in deeper measure for ourselves. Uh, And I want to start off with um, a story. I was... um, 
I was saved here in 2008, and then I moved back to America, and I was a religious studies major, which means I studied different religion, religions and religious thought from a secular university. And I, I took a class on Ezekiel. So one semester, we studied Ezekiel, just the book of Ezekiel, the whole semester. And I was loving it, learning a lot of great things. Summation of the, the book, he was a prophet, had to prophesy against idolatrous Israel, okay? And then we got to chapter 16, and I remember like the crap hit the fan. It was, it was so intense because what happened was um, that's when God began to use the metaphor of a husband and a wife in his relationship with Israel. And I, it just messed me up. It just it messed me up. I wasn't a believer before that. Okay, this was six years ago. And so it's the first time I read it, and I was just so appalled by what was going on in this chapter. And basically what happened was, uh, God, it was telling a story of how God walked by Israel as a baby about to die. And, and God said, you will live and not die. And then, and then he entered into covenant love. He married Israel. He married Israel and he entered into covenant love with her. And then soon after, she began to commit adultery on him over and over and over again. And in Jeremiah 31, 32, it says, they broke the covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife. And that's our history with God, right? God fashioned us, loved us, entered into covenant love with us, pursued us, won our hearts over, and then we rejected him. We turned away from him over and over and over again. That has been our relational history with God from the beginning of time. And God kept opening his heart to love us, to commit to us, and we kept breaking his heart over and over again. And I remember after we studied... um, Chapter 16, I, I'm a very dramatic person. And I went into my dorm room and I slammed the door. And I was like, why would you do this to yourself, God? Why? And I, I just began to have a conversation with, with the Lord. And I started to cry out to him. And I said, you know, God, you have been, you know, Father, you have been chilling with Jesus and Holy Spirit from forever ago, and you guys love each other perfectly. You're in perfect relationship with one another. You don't need our love to validate yourself. You don't need our love to make yourself feel good. You don't need us. You are in perfect love relationship. You're omniscient. You know everything. You knew the past and present and future. You knew what was in man, and you knew that we would disobey you. You knew when you created us that we would reject you. And we would turn from you. And we would break your heart. You knew we would do it because you know everything. Why would you put yourself through that, God? Why why would you make us if we're just going to do this to you? And I just remember I was just going at it with the Lord. <laughs> and um, and God, he doesn't answer all my why questions. But this one, he did. Okay? And the plain and theologically correct answer is God created creation to display his glory and all the aspects of his character, like his mercy and, ju- and justice and, and all that stuff is displayed through creation. Okay? And one of the attributes of his character, his, his perfect redemptive love, he foreknew the sacrifice of, of Christ on the cross. And so he wanted to display his love. Okay? But that, my head knew that. But this day, God was speaking to my heart. And what God was saying to my heart was, Rona, there is still so much you don't understand about my love. There is so much you still do not understand about my love. And I will show you why, even in foreknowing what was in man, I still wanted a love relationship with him. I will show you that it's worth it to me. Okay? And I remember thinking, it's worth it? 
Like, this, is, this heartbreak is worth it, God? What do you mean? It's not worth it. And the past few years walking with God and doing college ministry, honestly, I, I'm beginning to get glimpses of what the Lord meant when he said it's worth it to my heart. And I want to show a slide. So, if, Westfall, if you could pull it up. If, are you guys getting toasty or hot? I'm getting a little bit warm up here, maybe because I'm jumping around so much. Thank you. Um, can you guys see it okay? So basically, this, this is a picture from a video clip that I had watched on Facebook. And this man is named Ian, and the girl is named Larissa, and they're married. And basically, their story is um, they were madly in love. And they had dated for about a year. They were believers, and they were about to get married, but he got into a terrible car accident. And what happened was he lost all functionality of his body. He lost all functionality of his brain. He took these brain tests, and he failed every single one of them. He could not understand, and he could not respond, and he could not move. And then the church prayed, and what happened was he was healed because he passed three out of the five brain tests that he had failed the night before. So his brain functionality was, was a little bit there. But um, basically, what happened was Larissa, knowing his heart, she decided to marry him in that state anyway. She married Ian, being completely immobile and unable to function complex thoughts and unable to respond with complex um, sentences. And I'm not saying this because I'm saying all of you guys should go marry, you know, people. I'm not saying that. I want you guys to get the heart of what I'm saying here, okay? So don't take everything literally that I'm saying. But um, basically, she married Ian, and she soberly went into this marriage knowing what was in front of her. She knew the kind of life she was signing up for here. She entered into lifelong, covenant, committed relationship with this man in the current state that he was in. She knew what her life would look like, and she did not know if his body functionality would come back or if his brain functionality would come back, but she committed to him anyway. And all Larissa had was a picture of who Ian once was a really long time ago, which is the, up, the top left picture. And one of the things God spoke to me as I was meditating on this Ephesians 3 chapter was this. Number one, God's love is fixated on original design. God's love is fixated on original design. And what I mean by that is when Larissa sees, I'm using human examples because it helps us. Like, it's some vague, God's love is so awesome and perfect, but I'm using human examples because it helps us connect to the love of God, okay? So when she looks at Ian, she doesn't just see him in the current state that he's in, but she remembers the man that he used to be, okay? And when she looks at Ian, her love for him is not episodic, like how I feel for you right now in this moment, but she remembers who he was before. She remembers the original design. She remembers deeply what was in him, and she loves him holistically. She knows the original design of her husband. She probably doesn't feel like loving him very much when it's like day in and day out taking care of him, when she can't even communicate with him, but she remembers who he was, and she is committed in her love to that man. And that is a picture of how God loves us too. God is fixated on our original design. When he fashioned man 
in his image. And he stepped back and said, it is good. When he walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve in intimacy and in perfect relationship and said, it is good. He remembers what was in man. He remembered what we were made for. And when he loves us, it's not episodic. That's why it says in the word of God that in the midst of our transgression, he loved us right? It's because he remembered who we really are. The love of God is fixated on original design. Number two, another aspect of God's love that that I want to point out is that God's love is transformative. And this next picture of Ian is, um, it's a lot of crazy things happened in the three years that they had gotten that they had been married because at the beginning of their marriage, he only had like one word responses and, and he wasn't able to move at all. And after three years, three years, um, Ian went from being completely unable to walk to being able to walk by himself with a walker. And, um, I'm going to read to you a conversation from the video. Ian said, God's been healing me in my walking. It feels really good to be walking by myself. It means the world to me. The interviewer asked, how have you seen God at work in your marriage? Ian says, a better question would be, how have I not seen God at work in my marriage? Also, I'm attracted to my wife. And then Larissa said, what? You need God to help you with that? And then they both break out laughing. And then Ian said, no, I don't. Ha, ha, ha. Ian said, you know, I keep going back to those conversations in the kitchen with Larissa. I saw him more clearly when I'm having conversations with her. Okay? In three years, in three years, Larissa's love and care and commitment and the miraculous power of God transformed who he was. Right? The love of God is transformative. It not only remembers our original design and it not only sees us where we are, but it never ceases to hope. It never ceases to stop, it never stops believing in what we will be. When God looks at us, he doesn't just see us as we are now. He doesn't see us as we were before, but he sees us post-sanctification, okay? When we dealt with all the stuff we're dealing with, he he sees us in that form as well. The real and true love of God has a resolved and unmovable faith of what is to come. Love puts faith in what will be. And true love transforms the object of its affection into something beautiful. The love, true love transforms an unlovable thing into the most lovable thing. And that is the way that God loves us. Love lays down its life for the dead thing, bringing it to life. God says of his people, it's worth it. I know what I created man for. I know what you will be by the power of my love. I know that the power of my love can transform any life. And the next slide I want to show you, you can go to the next slide, Westfall. Thank you. Oh, not that one. Okay, this one. This is a picture of one of my previous disciples. He's the guy with the semi-beard in the family picture, and that's his wife, Ashley, and um, he's a full-time campus ministry staff with Light Bears, and I served with them, and he discipled me for a period of time. They're an amazing family. His name is Andrew, and, um, and those two daughters are their own biological children, and then Simeon is an adopted boy from Africa, and then the girl that Ashley is holding, her name is Paulina, okay? Paulina, and she was adopted by Andrew and Ashley about two years ago, And um, the process of adopting her was really long and arduous and heart-wrenching because, like, the home said that they could have her, and then they 
they said that she couldn't, and it, was, it took a lot of prayer, and it was very difficult for them. But they finally got her, and <clears throat> one thing about Paulina, though, is that she is disabled. Um, she's five years old, and she can't walk. She um, doesn't have muscle tissue in her legs, and she has quite severe and mysterious health problems that they don't really have the answers for. And Andrew and Ashley knew this when they adopted her. They knew full well all the complications with Paulina's health. And uh, since that time, they have spent so much time in prayer for her healing. They have spent so much time at the hospital looking for a solution to her unknown medical conditions. And they have spent so much money on these hospital bills as well. And I'm going to read one of Ashley's, um, a little post that Ashley posted on her blog about Paulina and one of the doctor's visits. She said, my little Paulina has been laying in a hospital bed for the last 24 hours and will be for a bit longer. We know some, but a lot is still very unknown. Often when describing my day with Paulina to Andrew, I give him the basics, but end by saying she is such a little mystery. And now as we try to figure out what is going on in her little body, we say it again, she is such a little mystery. It is a confusing, mysterious, overwhelming mess, but we are figuring it out. And she is totally worth every second of our time on this and every second we have to spend in a hospital. I love her so unbelievably much and I'm often overwhelmed at how blessed I am to have her as a daughter. She teaches me so much about God's goodness and grace. And today, as I was sitting in her hospital bed with her, she again brought me to my knees before Jesus for the way he loves his children and abundantly meets our needs. She was sleeping soundly after being poked and prodded with needles all day and I was resting next to her. I rolled over to reach for my phone and she cried out and took hold of me, grasping me with all her little might. She knows me, she trusts me, and she clings to me when, I, when fear and pain come. I have no words to describe the joy and gratitude and humility this brings me. We've asked God on her behalf that she would know us as her parents and trust us and know we are here. We are constant, we love, and we'll take care. And oh, beautiful glory, she does. She does, and I can't help but praise him. This is a human being's love for a daughter. And... And it is just a shadow and a glimpse of the love of God for us, his children. It's one woman's love, a woman who is sinful and a woman who has issues, her love for her daughter. And it's just a shadow of the love of God for his children, right? And the third thing I want to point out about the love of God is God's love is covenantal, has said love. Ashley and Andrew and Larissa all understood when they entered into these covenant relationships that it would be extremely hard, okay? They weren't, like, just playing around. They knew it was going to be very difficult. Adoption and marriage help us to get a glimpse of God's covenantal love towards us, but even in adoption and marriage, our own benefit and gain can be in there. And that's not a bad thing. But in these situations, they entered into these love relationships with only the aim to give selflessly. They entered into these relationships with only the aim to give love, not to receive it. They knew that these relationships would be heartbreaking. They knew it would be extremely difficult, that it would break their hearts. But that is a picture of God's love for us. It is a selfless, dying-to-yourself, inconvenient love. It is a one-way love from God.
In the Old Testament, the covenant love of God is displayed as his hesed love, or kesed love, okay? It can be translated as God's loving kindness, the consistent, ever-faithful, one-way love of God. And other words that describe this kind of love are mercy, steadfastness, devotion, commitment, reliability. And Rabbi Kamsler said, it's not just some generic love for everyone, but it can best be understood in English as loyalty, which refers to God's covenant loyalty because of his love for his people, okay? It is a loyalty, a fixed, resolved loyalty to the object of your affection, and it is selfless. The covenant of love of God is everlasting loyalty to to us. It is a love that sticks it through. It is a one-way love that gives with no expectation of return. And the fourth thing I want to mention about the love of God Um, is that it is incarnational, okay? What Jesus shows us about the love of God is that it's incarnational. And incarnation is the word that theologians use to describe when God took on flesh, when he became man and dwelt among us, okay? And, um, but what I want to kind of talk about tonight, if we're talking about the love of God, getting a greater revelation of it so that we can be more equipped to minister to those who are far from him. The incarnational love of God is so important because when we see Jesus in the flesh ministering from his heart of love, it will show us how to love because we're flesh and blood too. So it's not some, love is not some abstract concept, but we can see the way that Jesus perfectly manifested love as a human being. And I'm going to give a couple examples. <laughs> okay. Um, it means that Jesus was born in a manger to a carpenter. He was a carpenter's son, right? It means that he gathered a crew around him of illiterate, uneducated fishermen. It means that he went to a tax collector, the guy that everyone hated, and he said, hey, I'm going to your house today, Zacchaeus, okay? Everyone hated him. It means that he went to Mary and Martha's house, and he was delayed, and Lazarus had died. And instead of jumping right to the miracle to get the fruit and the testimony and just, just get it all done, he stopped and he wept with them. And he realized that it was just as powerful to weep with them than it was to perform the miracle. He saw a bunch of Hekka religious holy people holding stones in their hands and hatred in their heart. They were about to kill an adulterous woman. And he drew a line in the sand and said, Hey, he who is without sin cast the first stone. It's the same Jesus that went into a new town full of dirt. He was dirty, and as was his crew of of fishermen and tax collectors. And everybody got to the house, and everyone was too proud to wash the feet of their brothers. And so he got a towel, and he got on his knees, and he said, The greatest of you must be servant of all. What does the incarnational love of God look like in our lives? We can look to Jesus and find the answer. And I mentioned these facets of God's love. It's fixated on original design. It's transformative. It's covenantal, has said love, and it's incarnational. And of course, the most perfect display of this love, all these things, it it meets its center in the cross, right? We see the fullest expression of the Father's love in the cross, in Jesus' laying down his life in perfect, selfless love for us. In that act, God said, I am yoking myself with you. I am committing my perfect love to you. 
I am concerning myself with you, and I know that my love has the power to transform who you are. And that is why Paul prayed this prayer, that we can catch this uncatchable revelation of Christ's love. He didn't tell them to follow a formula or method, to work on their evangelism strategy, to, to he didn't burden them with, with whatever, a checklist. He didn't tell them to even grow a heart for the lost, but he said, I pray that you will catch this revelation of God's love. And I believe that this is our key, this is our starting place to minister to the lost in this season. And I have a really big heart for evangelism, so I, I could say a lot more, and I want to, about ministering to non-believers, but this is where we have to start. We have to get a greater revelation of God's love for us. And, and if we can do that, Paul promises that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. And what that means is, is um, if you look at the story of Gideon, God says that he... Um, the Holy Spirit clothed himself with Gideon, okay? Which means God kind of put Gideon on like a glove. What does it mean to be filled to the fullness with Christ? It means God kind of wears you like clothes. He puts you on like a glove. So it's not just a prophetic word that's anointed. It's not just your gospel presentation that's anointed. It's not just your prayer for healing that's anointed. But you are anointed. That's the anointing that Jesus carried. So everything he did was anointed. Everything he touched was anointed. And, and that is the kind of anointing that God wants to give us in this season. Because when people looked at Jesus, everything he did expressed the love and wisdom of God. And that's what God wants to do to us. So that we don't have to turn on evangelism, turn off evangelism, try really hard to be loving, and then we're just normal the rest of the time. God wants to transform us from the inside out. And that doesn't change by us just trying to be better. It changes by us meditating on the love of God for us and the, the tent, the, the house of Christ in us being enlarged. I will end now. I will end now. Okay. Um, I'm just going to pray for us. So please bow your heads with me. Father, I just thank you for who you are, and I thank you that um, there is so many exciting things to look forward to in this season. I thank you that you are going to give us opportunities to minister to people that are so close to your heart, that you call son and you call daughter, and I thank you that you are going to give us an ability to minister to them in, in such a powerful way, but I thank you that it's not going to be through trying so hard. It's not going to be so burdensome, but it's going to be so natural and organic. And God, I pray that right now you will stir up a hunger in each of us to go after this uncatchable revelation of your love, to know the depth and the height and the width and the length of it, God, that we could know it, God. I pray that you will fill us with all of the measure of the fullness of Christ. I pray that you will wear us like a glove, God. I pray that everything we do expresses your love and wisdom so we don't have to think about how we can love them, but it just flows from us as it did in you, Christ Jesus. And Lord, we just surrender our hearts to you and we thank you for your love that sees us as our original design, for your love that transforms us, for your love that is selflessly committed to us, that is long-lasting, that, that doesn't change, God. I thank you that your love is so real. It is so tangible. And I thank you that, God, you want to transform us day by day with your love. God, increase our revelation of your love for us. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.